Please pray with me. Dear God, we give you great thanks for your word, a word that is to nourish us. Let it be a lamp to our feet and a light in our lives, that in hearing the darkness will fall away and we'll be blessed with your life-giving spirit, recreated in your image and shaped to your purposes. Amen. Every time I go to a nursery, and I mean the sort of a chalet nursery that sells plants and trees, not the nursery down the hall with the toddlers. Every time I go to a nursery, I think of my dad and his springtime rituals, although I will say that tenderness with which my dad tends a garden is very, very much one that would rival a grandmother's tenderness in a nursery down the hall. After a lifetime of witnessing his rituals, I would expect that by mid-June, my dad would have restaked the borders of the garden, most likely enlarging it like he did year after year. The rototiller, which was overhauled in February, would have hammered through the soil, breaking up clumps, mixing in fertilizer or compost or whatever else he thought was needed. Although when we lived in Iowa with the blackest soil on earth, we didn't need anything as compared to the hard clay of the south when we lived there. His seedlings started in the basement under a grow lamp would have been separated and nursed to withstand the outdoors and measured into place in the garden, equal distance apart, enough room to grow, but close enough together to maximize yield. My dad was a farmer, had been raised on a farm. It was in his DNA, the arts and science of farming, and so he cared about the yield that we would get. Early radishes and spring onions would be staples on the table by now, and from those rhubarb bushes he transplanted from house to house, my mom would be working her way through her inexhaustible recipes of rhubarb for cobbler and sauces and chutneys. Before he retired, my dad traveled for work each week, and we returned home. The first thing he would do before coming in the house would be to go out and inspect the garden, the weekly progress, tie up any tomatoes, and always come in with a couple of handfuls of things that was now ripe, and only then would he kiss my mom. This was part of my life growing up, and now I have my own springtime rituals of planting, even though it's limited to a few containers and a stamp book-sized lot in the city. So with this ingrained in my memory, the first parable of Mark seems way too far-fetched for me to ever consider. In that parable, a sower just scattered seeds and ignored them, and he went to sleep, and yet a harvest was possible. The parable that followed of the mustard seed appears in Matthew and Luke, but they drop the story of the sower who reaps without a lick of labor because perhaps for them it too was also an unbelievable story as well. The word parable comes from the Greek word para, meaning alongside or next to, and the verb balo, which we would translate as to throw. So parables are stories thrown alongside our lives. And in Mark, Jesus speaks primarily in parables. He told stories from common life, inviting hearers into his message and provokes them to use their imaginations. As difficult as parables may be to parse, they are the way God speaks to us through Jesus in language of earth and seed and season and daily life that we can understand. It startles us. Parables startle us to see other people, God and ourselves in new light. Parables are meant to be disruptive, they interrupt what you thought you knew, not just to teach you something new, but to confront you with an unwanted or surprising truth. And parables are useful when the truth you want to share is difficult, and it might be difficult to hear, to comprehend, or to trust. 
Remember, as I introduced our gospel reading, Jesus' first words in Mark and the backdrop against which all of his sayings are to be measured is, change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. So let's imagine as Jesus asks what good news we're to trust as he offers a common plant to describe how the kingdom of God could be working its way into our world. Now mustard is a, an herb with medicinal properties and one that's useful for flavoring and preserving food. But the mustard bush, though, is a garden pest. No one sows a mustard on purpose. It grows all too readily on its own, and once it appears, it absolutely takes over a field. So for anyone that's driven in the south, think of the kudzu that lines the highways. Would anyone intentionally plant kudzu? Mustard is also an annual plant. Its perpetuation depends upon the life of the seed. The mustard seed is a very small seed. It may be proverbial, but a mustard seed is not the smallest seed, nor is the mustard bush the largest of the shrubs, and it doesn't have great big, huge green leaves for things to nest in. So Jesus' story is actually just as absurd as the story of the sower who reaps a harvest despite ignoring the garden. The large crowd that heard these parables of the coming of the kingdom of God thirsted for a word of hope amidst their lives. Most most would have been bound to a particular lot in life by birth and completely unable to break out of it. There were those who had ailments, whether physical or emotional, that labeled them for the entirety of their lives. But there were also those who might have been in the middle of the road. Conditions were not too, too bad for these people, but they didn't trust in the foundation of the Roman Empire or the Jewish establishment. And there would have also been in this large crowd of listeners those who held the reins of power and knew firsthand how tenuous control was and how fragile their authority with which they exercised power. Struggle was common and the status quo was certainly not the answer for anyone who heard these parables. Now, the lectionary joins these parables with the poem from Ezekiel, who spoke to a group also of disenfranchised people, and more so than that, they were exiled. They had lost their homes and their professions were ripped apart. All of them were struggling. But rather than try to explain a poem, just listen again for portions of it, for its beauty and the tenderness from the voice of God. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs. I will plant it myself on a high and lofty mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. After so many struggles when the Israelites had hit bottom, this was the poem of the future, but one that depends upon facing the truth. They had fought others and lost. They had served their interest and tried to succeed on their own terms, and they came up far short. Remembering their mighty past, they fought to restore it at all cost and simply could not. Now, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of the friendly confines in Wrigleyville. Only when they hit absolute bottom and they decided that clinging to the old relics would not allow new life, then renovations began, new plantings, and new life, and the Cubs are in second place, and it's not preseason anymore. If there's any team that demands an understanding of surrender, it's the Cubs. God's tender-hearted response in the poem is directed to those who had struggled on their own 
and they had to surrender in our highly competitive culture. But hasn't it always been competitive? Hasn't life always driven us to compete? To surrender has always been unfathomable. Surrender means death, and we don't ever want to give up. When I was at work in IBM, I remember motivational posters around the office of Winston Churchill and heard a manager say repeatedly, we shall defend our islands, whatever the cost, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and the streets, we will fight in the hills, we will never surrender, we will never give up. It was ingrained in all of us. Yet in surrendering, particularly for those of us who struggle, and not for food or shelter, but to make meaning and relationships, at some point when we stop and we recognize our limitations and we surrender, we have the chance to wipe clean the scars, wipe clean the state, slate, and start over. Author Joan Chister writes, surrender does not mean simply that I quit grieving what I do not have. It means that I surrender to new meanings and new circumstances that I begin to think differently and to live somewhere that is totally elsewhere. There are times to let a thing go, and there is a time to let surrender take over so that the past does not consume the present, so that new life can come, so that joy has a chance to surprise us again. So surrendering to our fear of the other and actually greeting them face to face is the one way to create new and stable relationships. Surrendering our superiority is the only way we can create racial harmony, which is a crucial step in stemming the violence in our city. When we realize the problems of life are bigger than we can control or confront, we can surrender. For it is in the depths of surrender that we find hope. Hope does not live in isolation from struggle or surrender. Hope is, though, the green shoot that emerges from a buried seed. Importantly, let's not remind ourselves, let's remind ourselves that hope, especially Christian hope, is not optimism. Optimism is an outlook or a disposition. There are some of us that know people who are always predisposed to this than others. They can always look on the sunny side of life. And there are people who seem to consistently find reasons to be positive when others are negatives. This is optimism, and I love being around an optimist. It's the way in which people choose to look at things, but that's not the same as hope. Much has been written of hope even from the very earliest of times. According to an ancient Greek Promethean myth, Pandora was given a box and told not to open it. But of course, curiosity got the better of her and she opened the box, unleashing countless evils. But at the very bottom of the box, after all the evils had flown out, the thing at the bottom of Pandora's box was and is hope. Much will say this hope is also an evil to confuse the human spirit, and there's been wisdom literature that says the same, I quote, hoping and waiting make many a fool. And Albert Camus proclaimed, thinking clearly, or think clearly and do not hope, for hopes are the playing field of politicians and economic deceivers who sell illusions and destroy real life. When Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed, he was not selling an illusion of fame and fortune, but an image of flourishing from the smallest, unlikely of sources, able to take root in barren places, 
and of being able year after year to bring life not based upon human abilities, but through God's grace. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann writes, Hope is the expectation of good fortune that is awakened through God's promises and supported by trust in God. Hope does not detach the human spirit from the present through delusions, but rather the opposite. It pulls the promised future into the present and places the experienced present in the dawn of God's future. Hope does not empty out one's life, but rather fills it with new powers. Now, some of you may have heard me say this one-on-one. -on -one. It's pastoral wisdom that I've learned from others that is to strengthen us in times of illness, but it also serves as a map for the other challenges we face in life. No one and nothing can ever take away your hope. With the symptoms of an illness, we hope to find its cause. Maybe the diagnosis is tough, but you look forward with hope for effective treatments. In recovery, your hope leads you to appreciate life in ways that differs from before and it's richer. If illness returns and treatments no longer serve their purposes, becoming a burden and not a remedy, you hope for a quality of life with family and friends. And as the horizon creeps closer, hope now compels honesty and goodbyes with joy and not regret. In the face of death, those who survive will hope for a healing to their grief, to let love shine brighter even though the loss is heartbreaking. We hope for new love and life to emerge from the smallest slip of emotion left. Nothing or no one can ever take away your hope. Hope is the mystery that is embedded within us, calling us to imagine new life when we thought all was lost. And hope is not based upon an ability to fabricate a better future. It is grounded in the ability to remember with new understanding an equally difficult past. And our memories are the seedbed of hope. It's just like a tiny seed containing all the instructions for roots and stems and tendrils and blossoms and food. It's from the DNA of this memory of death and rebirth mutations to thrive and all the instructions to create life and more seeds for new life. Hope is found when we think all is lost and only then from the smallest package given by God. That's when we find new life. Amen.